0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible reading is from Matthew 28, 18-20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Well, g'day everybody. It is so good to see you all uh, And a new year, Uh, it's only been two weeks since we met, but Gosh, it feels like so much longer. So much has happened. It's the strangest Christmas, surely, that we've all had. I hope you haven't had to isolate or anything like that, or if you've had COVID, that you've recovered. Uh, Praise God for that. I know there's a number of people in our church who have it at the moment uh, or uh, are with close contacts and so on. So let's be praying for them as well. Uh, But I'm excited to start this new year, and particularly to start it with the Great Commission. It's a passage that's so familiar probably to all of us, Uh, And so famous, and yet I haven't, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon series on it. And as I've been studying it over the past uh, month or so, it's been so fascinating and so exciting to think about it. Uh, these words that Jesus spoke are very famous and very uh, precious to us for a number of reasons. First of all, they're famous because they were his last words uh, while he was here on earth in the Gospel of Mark. He has a very similar speech and we're told that as soon as he finished that speech, he was taken up into heaven. He ascended up into heaven and left his disciples here. Uh, and there's something really precious about those last words that anyone says, aren't they? Uh we prize them. We hold on to the last thing that someone said to us. We, we know that this is their parting message to us. And, and often it, the last words of someone define their life, define who they are. It's the thing that they were most passionate about that they want to pass on to someone else. And, and so there is a real sense in which the Great Commission defines Jesus's passions. But even more than that, the Great Commission defines who we are. It doesn't just define who Jesus is, it defines who we are as God's people, as the church. Because this is the thing that Jesus wants us to be known for. This is the mission that he is giving to us, the commission that Jesus is giving to us. And what is it? To go and make disciples of all nations. Over the next four weeks, we're going to look at what this means, what the Great Commission means in detail. Next week, we're going to think about how we go. The week after that, we'll think about how we teach, what it means practically to make disciples. And then in the last week of the series, we'll think about Jesus' statement, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why Jesus said this and why that's so important for us. But today I want to look at the the phrase that sort of precedes the Great Commission, that, that sets it all up. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, this phrase is fundamental to the Great Commission. There wouldn't be a Great Commission unless there was this thing. And you see it in the flow of the text. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Go and make disciples because I have all authority. That's what Jesus says. You see, the goal of the Great Commission is discipleship. And intrinsic to discipleship is authority. A disciple is someone who follows after Jesus, who embraces and accepts his authority. Ben Merkel, the writer, says discipleship is a commitment to wholeheartedly learn from and follow someone. The idea of a person submitting to the teaching and training of another, which which you only would do if you accepted their authority. So Jesus is setting this up as the key thing. He is saying he has authority. And certainly that's how he spoke about it in his own ministry. Uh, you think about the ways he would call people to become his disciples. Take my yoke upon me, like a farmer addressing an ox. or Sell all that you have and follow me. Give up everything else that you were doing and follow me. He, he's assuming a certain type of authority. And he's asserting it here too, isn't he? Merkel points out that Jesus here claims all authority, sends his followers to all nations, telling them to teach everything that he spoke about and he'll be with them to the end. This is all and everything here. And so disciples are those who recognize the authority of Jesus. As one writer puts it, to disciple a person to Christ is to bring him into the relation of pupil to teacher, taking his yoke of authoritative instruction, accepting what he says as true because he says it and submitting to his requirements as right because he makes them. It all hinges on this. Now this means one of two things. Either, one, Jesus has just got tickets on himself. He has this massively inflated view of his own importance. Or two, he actually does have this authority. He does have the right, the privilege of calling people to follow him. Now, you won't be surprised to know that I think it's the second option, that Jesus does have this authority. And tonight I want to think about why. And the first reason that Jesus has this authority is that he is God and creator. Jesus Christ is God. He, was, he is human, but he is also divine. He's not just a, a great moral teacher. He's not just someone who has fantastic hair like in all the pictures. He is God himself. And that's how he's presented in the Bible, Colossians 2. In him, the whole, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Or Hebrews 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's what the New Testament writers said and and we know it in the way Jesus spoke about himself. You see, throughout his ministry, Jesus took the names of God and appropriated them for himself. He said, this is who I am. Most notably, he used that phrase, I am. If you were here last year, remember that that is the name that God revealed himself to his people in the book of Exodus. I am. It's the name that only the creator could have. It means that he is always present, dwelling in an everlasting present, uncreated, always has been, always will be, unchanging, the same yesterday, today and forevermore. I am. Jesus took that for himself. He also called himself the son of God. Uh, In the ancient world, a son would do what their father did. So if your dad was a carpenter, you would be a carpenter. So when Jesus says, I am the son of God, he is making himself equal with God. He's saying, just like God, anything that God does, can do, I can do. I'm sovereign, I'm powerful, I'm the creator. That's what Jesus is saying about himself. He also called himself the Son of Man. In fact, this was his most uh, popular phrase. He uses it 80 times throughout the Gospels. And this points to his divinity as well. You see, the phrase Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7, where the prophet talks about this figure, the Son of Man who comes with the clouds of heaven, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is a term full of authority. And Jesus takes it for himself. So Jesus claims authority as creator and God. Now, of course, this causes a bit of controversy Uh, right through the Gospels. We see this conflict as the Jewish uh, religious authorities question and resist what Jesus is saying. And you can kind of understand why. You see, in the uh, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, uh, it was said to God's people that there was only one God. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And only this God was to be worshipped. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so whenever someone came along and dared to compare themselves with God, to, to say that they're on the same level as God, it's no wonder that they re- reacted to that. And in fact, that's actually Uh, What ultimately was the the grounds that they gave for executing Jesus. In In the trial, the high priest says to him in Matthew 27, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And when he says that he is, they say, you've now heard his blasphemy. So ultimately they decide to kill him. So how can Jesus say this? If there's only one God, how can Jesus say that he is equal with that God? Well, really, Jesus was expanding and drawing out the theology of God. See, even though there is is only one God, there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. We call this the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, these three are the one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. This is an incredible mystery. It's that the kind of thing that your kids constantly ask about. It's very hard to explain to anyone. It's hard to explain to yourself. But the Bible points to it constantly. In fact, it's right there the the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 2, when God is making humanity, he says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Right here, Jesus says, go and baptise the disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus... Is truly God. So that means that he is also the creator. He makes and sustains the world. Colossians 1, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth and he sustains the world. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1, the world and all the matter that we see and touch around us holds together purely because of the authority and power of Jesus. He's God. God has all authority. And so Jesus has all authority. Uh, As the great theologian Abraham Kuyper says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Jesus made everything. He rules over Everything. He has all authority. And so discipleship begins with an acknowledgement that he has that authority as God and creator. And that's what we see in the Gospels. We see the disciples respond to Jesus and worship him. Uh, You think about when Jesus calms the storm, we're told that those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Just before this passage in Matthew 28, the first time they see Jesus risen from the dead, they worshipped him, we're told. And then in their letters later on in the New Testament, it's amazing to see how they describe Jesus. John says he is the true God. Peter says he is our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Paul says he is our great God, the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Thomas, doubting Thomas, says, My Lord and my God. They recognize his authority. And I think it's really significant, actually, that the disciples do this. You see, there would be one simple way to disprove Christ's divinity, and that would be for him to sin, to make a mistake. See, God is perfect and holy, and even just one little thing would disprove Christ's claim to divinity. And these disciples were with Jesus for years. They saw him up close. They saw him when it was an easy time and a hard time. They saw it on the, the good days and the bad days. They saw him with the crowds, and they saw him alone. They saw him when he was fated and celebrated and when he was oppressed and taunted. And in all of this, they never saw him sin. In fact, even Judas, after he betrays him, says, I have shed innocent blood. In all of these things, Jesus never stuffed up. There was never a moment of selfishness or dismissiveness or lust or anything like that. And so Jesus is God and has authority. Revelation 4, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things and by your will, They existed and were created. Jesus has authority as creator and God. And then he also has authority, secondly, as saviour and king. See, as creator, Jesus has the right to decide what our life should be like. Uh, He's designed us. You think about when you, you create something. You do it with a purpose in mind. You have an intention. I'd like to do something that would open a can or something like that. So I'll make a can opener. And that's the purpose. That's the function of that thing that you have made. And so when God created us, he also did it with a purpose in mind. And what was that? Well, it was for us to live with him and for him. Colossians 1, all things were created through him and for him. That was God's intention and it's set up right at the start. You see God speak to the first humans, Adam and Eve, and say here's the the rules, here's the way I want life to be for you. You can't eat of these things but you can eat of this and really what God is saying is I want you to live with me and for me. I want you to trust what I'm saying to you and then follow after me. I I want you to, to live and to find life with me. That's God's invitation to them. But of course, they didn't trust him. They disobeyed God. They went against his instructions, and everyone else has since. In fact, human history is the story of God's invitation to humans to trust him and follow him and to find life with him. And then the story of humans constantly failing to do that. Think about Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. God gives them his law and says, here's uh, here's a revelation of my heart. Here's how I want you to live. If you follow this, you will be blessed. Everything will be great. But they don't follow him. They don't trust him. But think about us as well. I mean, we have access to God's heart, God's law, God's mind. We have evidence of his goodness and his kindness every day of our lives. And yet so often we don't trust him or follow after him. Why is that? Well, ultimately it's because we want to be the authority in our own lives. God might have the authority, but we want it for ourselves. We want to be the king. And that's actually how it was set up, wasn't it? In Genesis 3, the devil comes in and he says to Adam and Eve, if you eat this, you will be like gods. You will have authority. You'll be able to create your own world. You'll be able to decide your own purpose For yourself. This is the temptation that worked with them and it works with us every day. We want to be the boss of our lives. Jesus has the authority, but we take it from him. He may be the king, but we set ourselves up as the kings and queens of our lives. And so God sent Jesus to reestablish his kingdom in the world, to reestablish his rule and his reign over the hearts and minds of people. And and just here, it might be helpful to just step back slightly to think about this idea of the kingdom of God. See, God has authority over all things. Jesus rules over all the world, that Kuiper quote. There's not a thing in the domain of all creation that God doesn't say, this is mine. So Jesus has all authority as God. And yet there is another sense in which his active rule in the world is thwarted or, or kind of resisted by humans. Now, Kevin DeYoung makes the point that his kingdom is not so much like a, a geographical reality, it's more of a spiritual reality. And it's it's about his reign in someone's life. He says the kingdom exists where knees and hearts bow to the king and submit to him. We're people responding and follow him as king. That's where Christ's kingdom is. And that's what Jesus came to establish. Now, this is the theme of Matthew's gospel. There's 55 references to the kingdom of God in that, that gospel alone. You see Jesus right at the start, begin his public ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's constantly telling the crowds about this kingdom, what it's like to live under his rule think about the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's. He's giving them an ethical framework, what life looks like if you're following him as king. In Matthew 4, we're told he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And really what he's doing here is he's calling people back to him. He's inviting all of the people around uh, in the land to, to respond. He's asserting his authority as God. He's equal with the Father. He's the creator. He's asserting his authority as the creator as he stills the the storm, as he uh, turns someone's play lunch into a massive lunch for everybody. He's showing his power over all the elements of the world as creator. And he's showing himself as king, as someone worthy to follow, to submit to. And yet, of course, Once more, people resisted him. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? All through the history of humanity, we've constantly resisted the king. And so when the king came in human form, people resisted him. And and you see the kind of ferocity of that resistance as Jesus is there up on the cross and he's being taunted. Here is our king. And in this moment, Jesus seems... Utterly defeated. A king slain by his subjects. The creator crushed by his creation. God overthrown by humanity. And yet, of course, it's in this moment that Jesus is actually asserting his authority as saviour. You see, to be king... Jesus also had to be saviour, to, to reign in our hearts. He had to first heal those hearts from sin. He had to overcome the thing that destroys us, sin and death. You see, justice and virtue demand that God does something about our rebellion. And that means that our sin has to be punished. But the wonder of our king is that he takes that punishment. That our king chooses to save us. He stands in the path, diverting that justice onto himself and away from him. And here we see the most surprising but most important aspect of Christ's authority. First, he breaks the power of death, the wages, the consequences, the penalty of sin is death. Jesus pays that, and because he pays that, he rises to new life and he then defeats death. He gives us the chance of living beyond the grave. 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But God has given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus shows his immense power by defeating death. And not only that, he defeats the power of sin in our lives. He rises to new life and with that he claims the spirit for us and so that God can live inside our hearts and those hearts that are so rebellious he can turn to him and so those hearts that keep rebelling against him now submit, enjoy and find life with him. Here in this moment we see the wonder of Jesus' authority as saviour and king. On the cross, he looks defeated, but actually he's victorious. This is a wonderful poem by Edward Shiloto, Jesus of the Scars. The other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you did stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but you alone. Here is the power of your king, the power to defeat death, to defeat sin, and the willingness to die to do that for you, for me. And this establishes him as the one worthy of all worship. And so how will we respond? That's the question. As De Young says, God's kingdom exists where people bow their hearts to Christ. So have you. Have you bowed your heart to Christ? Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what we are invited to take on, to become his disciples. To become his disciple is to recognise his authority, to accept his authority as God, the sovereign ruler of all things. To acknowledge his authority as creator, the one who made us, the one who gets to define and decide our purpose, to trust that. To acknowledge his authority as saviour, to say, actually, I haven't walked according to your rule. I've resisted and rebelled against you and I'm sorry for that. To confess that and then to receive his authority as king, to al- to invite him to rule our lives and to submit to his will. That's what God is asking us to do, inviting us to do. And, of course, this is the thing that we struggle with. I remember I had a friend uh, who had a brother that she was really worried about. Uh, This guy was uh, sleeping with his girlfriend and just basically kind of avoiding God's rule in his life but still calling himself a Christian. And I always remember what she said. Jesus is his saviour, but he's not his Lord right now. And maybe you've heard that, or maybe you've even tried to live that way yourself. Really what she was saying is, he trusts Jesus as saviour, but not as king. But it doesn't work like that. Jesus is king and saviour, and those two things always go together. He is king because he is saviour, He's won the right to be king because of his saving work. And he's not our saviour if he's not our king. If we're not willing to submit to him, then we can't say that he has taken our sin from us. So have you submitted to him as saviour and king? You see, it only makes sense to have the two together because if you've truly felt your sin, you're desperate for Christ's authority. You want his authority to take that sin away, to take the consequences and the penalty, and then you want him to change you. You want his power in your life. So have our hearts bowed to the king. Are we his disciples? Now, this is difficult. It's a constant battle. Even after you've said yes, you have to keep saying yes every day. You know this, don't you? You don't wake up eager to submit to God very often. But each time we do, each time we say yes to God, we discover more and more his goodness. He has all authority and his authority is good. He is the creator who designed us. And the more we follow his design, the more life we find with him and here's the thing if we say yes to him we also get to be a part of his extraordinary work in the world around us you see Jesus says go and make disciples it starts with us we need to say yes we need to become disciples and then if we do Jesus invites us to go out there and to make other disciples, to go and help other people see the authority and the goodness of Jesus and to respond to that. Because Jesus is developing and spreading his authority through the world. So you might have noticed something here too, that it says Jesus was given authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. What's that mean? I mean, how can he be given authority if he's already God? What more authority does he need? I think what it's talking about here is the active uh, manifestation of his power. Jesus has always had authority as God, as creator, and he's won authority over his people as king through his saving work. And now that authority is going to seep out into the world. It's going to spread through the world. D.A. Carson says, it's not Jesus' authority per se that becomes more absolute. Rather, the spheres in which he now exercises his authority are enlarged. The Son becomes the one through whom all of God's authority is mediated. See, God's goodness, God's reign, God's wisdom is flowing into the world through Jesus, and it starts with us. See, God is going to bring this great rule and reign. We see these beautiful pictures of what's going to happen in the future, the new world, the greater things that are to come, a time where where Jesus rules and truth and justice reign, where there's no rebellion and only obedience and flourishing as that as that flows from that. Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. All those things just existed when everyone just disobeyed Jesus. But when Jesus comes back, everyone will obey him and respond to him and life will come with flourishing. That's what's coming. That's what happens when Jesus reigns over people's lives. And we, as his people, get to be a preview of that. We're the trailer for the coming attraction. When people see us, when people see the people in this room, when people see the church living and loving together, when people see the way we respond to the great ruler, then they are inspired to want to do the same. They see a light within us that they're desperate for. That's our job. We go and make disciples. And the big part of that is by being disciples together and showing his glory and his wonder. We point to the goodness of his rule. And then we prepare the way for his return. See, Jesus is coming back, he once came in great humility born in a manger, in a nondescript stable. He lived in humility, a poor carpenter who had nowhere to lay his head, who suffered hunger and tiredness, suffering, persecution, death. He was the great king who became a servant, the pauper, Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus made himself nothing. And because he did that, God raised him up. The verse goes on, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone will respond to Jesus ultimately. His rule and his reign will extend throughout the new heavens and the new earth. But there is a serious and a a troubling side to this. See, Jesus has authority as creator, as God, as saviour, as king, but also as judge. 2 Corinthians 5 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what was due for us, for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. And really what God is looking for is how have we responded to the authority of Jesus? When he comes, every knee will bow. But some will do it in shame because they're compelled to. We, though, have the option of doing it now, willingly, joyfully, and then being part of his work and preparing the world for the return of its king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you we acknowledge you as our god and our creator we confess that we've so often resisted your authority and defied you we haven't lived out the purpose that you have designed for us we're sorry for that we thank you jesus that you came to save us to bring us back That you died for us. The punishment that we deserve, you took for yourself. You humbled yourself. And now we acclaim you as King of all things and of our lives. Help us to continually submit our lives to you, to trust that your will is good. And then, Lord, help us to prepare the way for your return to point to your goodness and your greatness so that others bend the knee to you. May you come back, uh, when you come back, may we greet you with great joy and excitement. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.